Um, The first reading is from Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals... Herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The second reading is from John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you what? and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. This is God's word. We have my welcome. Uh, My name's uh, Matt. If we've not met Matt Fuller, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Uh, Father God, there is so much which seems strange to us in this story. Would you help us to understand it rightly, where it, what was taking place, how it fits into the whole Bible and the revelation of who you are? Would we understand those things so that we respond rightly, whether we're Christians or not, to you, the wonderful, compassionate God? Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is quite a day, or several days, could be, I guess it could be three days, that Jonah preaches in this city of Nineveh, and 120,000 people become Christians in three days. That's good. That's extraordinary. Not just the number, it's the whole city. I mean, 1% of London being converted in three days, I give or take, that would be good, but the whole city would be fairly magnificent. And you think, wow, wow, what an extraordinary set of events. And what do we do with it? What can we learn from this? I mean, this is the, the, this is the, the best or the, certainly the greatest revival in one sense you see in the whole of the scriptures. What do you learn from it? Well, 
on the one hand, if, you, if you're trying to come to Jonah 3 and think, well, how can we learn to make God do this again? Uh, you can't manipulate the Lord. But there is a sense in which even this most extraordinary of revivals is just the story of any single conversion writ large. So things you can learn about how any single person becomes a Christian from this. This is just God's work writ large. Uh, and that's what I want to do. Look then uh, at God's work. And it won't say how anyone becomes a Christian and lives the Christian life. So four things. The Lord gave a second chance. Jonah preached judgment. The Ninevites repented of evil. God relented. The Lord, Jonah, Ninevites, God. Then we're done. Okay. Let's go. First then. Verses one and two. The Lord gave a second chance. This is chapters three, verses one and two. is almost, almost identical to chapter one, one to two. Let me read that first of all, chapter one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Very similar to chapter three, verses one and two. There are three differences. Can you spot them? Want to play that game? Uh, chapter 3, 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So here in chapter 3, rather than proclaiming against it, Jonah is to proclaim to it. It's softened slightly. Rather than emphasizing the wickedness of Nineveh, chapter 1, it's the obedience of Jonah, chapter 3, emphasized. And of course, in chapter 3, this is the second time. So there are hints here that it's not quite as black and white, not quite as fierce a message as in chapter 1. But I guess the main thing you take away from this is it's a second time. God has given to Jonah a second chance to do what he should have done all along and go and preach to Nineveh. And therefore it's a second chance for Nineveh too. Obvious point. God could have let Jonah die. End of chapter 1, chapter 2 if you've been here. He really could have just let Jonah die and used anyone from Israel to go to Nineveh. But he chose to give Jonah a second chance. Allowed him to experience, again, God's mercy to him. So we might know a little bit more about it. So it's a second chance for Jonah and a second chance for Nineveh to hear this message they need to hear. Now God is a God of second chances. And third, sometimes, and fourth. But I guess in one sense you say it's a pattern you see it in the scriptures. That's what I had read. Uh, John 21, you see the same with Peter. If, if you're a Bible reader, you know it. Three times when Jesus is on trial, Peter denies him. Do you know this man? No. Do you know this man? No. You know this man, don't you? No. Three times, Peter denies, even knows Jesus. Jesus dies, rises from the dead, and says to Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Oh, three times I've had to affirm you. And then Jesus says, yeah, even you, you muppet. He doesn't say that, actually. Uh, even you who deny me three times. It's a second chance for you, Peter, feed my sheep. I'm not giving up on you. Here's a second chance. Even then, of course, if you, again, if you're a Bible reader, you know you get to the book of Acts. And Peter says, well, I preach to the Jews, but no one else. And so he has to have this dramatic vision in Acts chapter 10 to say, Peter, go and preach not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles too. My mercy is not just for one group of people. Peter, my mercy is for everyone. And then eventually he gets it and he's willing to preach to all 
nations, all races, genders, backgrounds, classes, to all sorts of people. It takes him quite a while. God gives second, third chance to Peter. He is a God of second chances. So Jonah really is a book about, I guess, Jonah learning to share the mercy of God with those he didn't want to. He was reluctant to share that message. And so for you here this evening, if you're a Christian, and if you're honest, you've not spent a huge amount of time caring for people who aren't Christians, you're pleased you're going to heaven, but the fact that those around you are not, they're destined for hell, that, you just kind of run with that. And at times, I'm just too busy, yeah. And perhaps too self-absorbed, perhaps. Well, here's a second chance for you and for me. You don't need to experience or, or have a near-death experience like Jonah did to sort of wake you up and go, all right, Lord, I'll obey you and I'll go and tell people about Jesus. You, you don't need that. But certainly also you don't need to let past failures define you. You don't need to say in your head, I am just not very good at telling other people about Jesus. You don't need to, well, that may have been true thus far. But have another go. Read through the book of Jonah several times and say, actually, I'm going to be different now. I, I, I'm going to really care much more about showing your mercy, Lord, to other people. Have another go. Jonah ran away and God still used him for the greatest revival the Bible knows. So for you and me, if we've been pretty lame at telling other people about Jesus, it's not over yet. God is a God of second chances. The Lord gave a second chance. Verses 1 and 2. So Jonah goes, and uh, secondly then, Jonah preached judgment. He preached judgment, verses 3 and 4. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah, three days in the belly of a great fish. Now, three days were walking through a city of uh, his enemies, Ninevites, hostile to the people of Israel. And what was his message? Verse 4. Well, Jonah began by going on a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I'd guess he told them a bit more than that. If you read uh, Matthew chapter 12, the Ninevites seem to understand something about uh, Jonah and the great fish, so he's presumably told them a little bit about his experience as well. But all we're told that he told them is the guts of the message. Here's the headline. You can read the rest if you want, but here's the headline that they needed to know. 40 more days, and Nineveh overturned. And presumably they heard that word as destroyed. Same word as in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah were overturned, destroyed. And clearly in chapter uh, 3, verse 10, the Lord planned destruction. It's a different word there. But 40 more days and Nineveh's going to be destroyed, overturned. It's just a little play on words here, though. Because this word overturned, it can be a physical, a city is raised to the ground. It's also used in the Old Testament for a moral changing of mind. An ethical overturning. So it's not what Jonah thought he was proclaiming, but the message is 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, possibly physically and destroyed, possibly morally in their hearts. That's not defined at this stage. J- 
Jonah clearly thinks and wants its destruction. And I guess that's entirely how the Ninevites took it. Forty more days, and they and their city will be destroyed. Why? Well, we're told in chapter 1, verse 1, because of wickedness. What do you take from that? Well, of course, the, the truth of the Scriptures is, and Jesus is clearest on this, well, clearer on this than anyone else in the whole of the Bible. That when everyone, when each and every one of us dies, we face judgment. And naturally, every human being is flawed. And for a flawed human to stand before a judge whose standards is perfection, who in himself is morally perfect and can bear nothing that is wrong, we're lost. Oh, I haven't done anything that wrong yet, but you've done wrong. And so the truth of the Scriptures is all of us face judgment. Of course, Jesus puts in really stark language. He says, everyone without exception, naturally, is destined for hell. Unless you trust in my death for you. That I've taken hell for you, so you can go to heaven. What do you learn from that? Look, people become Christians in many, many different ways. I'm not sure I understood that when I became a Christian, although I did subsequently, and it's sort of part of it. You need to get your head around that as soon as you become a Christian. People become Christians in lots of different ways. But it is hard to think of a significant revival, thousands becoming Christians in a short period of time, where the wonders of God's love haven't been taught alongside the horrors of hell. Just historically, that's true. People do need to know both. In fact, it's very hard to appreciate quite how wonderful Jesus is unless you know what he's done for you. Imagine you go to bed one night uh, and um, you wake up and you're not in your house flat. And you wake up in a hospital bed and you're, you're in some distress and pain and discomfort and you see the nurse and you say, oh, hello, uh, what's this? And she says, oh, there was a fire in your house. And uh, you were dragged out by your neighbor and uh, you rendered unconscious by the smoke. Uh, you, you've been here a little while. Oh, oh, golly. Well, good, good job the neighbor came in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, has he been in? I'd love to say thanks to him. Well, yeah, he's in that bed over there. What? And in the bed next to you is... Well, there's a man with both his legs amputated. You can't see him. He's just wrapped and wrapped in bandages. Well, what happened to him? Well, in pulling you out, he shielded you. and Well, he suffered 80-degree burns. And I'm afraid he's lost his legs. And, well, I have to tell you, he's horrifically disfigured. Oh. Oh, I owe him quite a big deal. Y- yeah, you do. It is only when you know what you're facing and you know that Jesus has saved you from the horrors of an eternity without the living God. Eternity shut out from his presence, an eternity in hell. It's only when you get the depths of that that you realize quite what Christ went through. We've sung he's the Lamb of God in our place, yeah, but what he took was pretty extraordinary.
you can't really, you only really wonder at how, what Jesus has done if you get the depths of what he saved you from. And so as I say, it's, it's hard to think of a significant revival in history that hasn't mentioned the horrors of hell alongside the wonders of God's love. In language that you and I would be very, very uncomfortable with, perhaps, but that truth has been made clear. Let me just read you. I mean, I'll be told off for this, no doubt. But here's just a little extract. Uh, one of the most famous sermons ever given. You, meant you have to study it in American literature if you grow up in the States, and certainly in some um, uh, states over there. But Jonathan Edwards' sermon, uh, 1741, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it in his own church, and no one did a thing. It went down like a complete lead balloon. He went and preached it in a church down the road a couple of weeks later, and revival kicked off and spread throughout the whole of Connecticut. I mean, it's pretty vivid. You can read it online. It's one of those things freely available. But golly, he preached judgment pretty hard. Let me give you one quote. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. You are held above a pit of God's anger. It is a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, and that you're held over in the hand of that God whose wrath it is that you've provoked and incensed. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. Ooh. We would never use language like that today, would we? The thing is, of course, that's true. As Edwards would say, look, that, that, that slender thread, if you're not a Christian, it could break tonight. The only reason it doesn't break is because God keeps it there. That's a real mercy of his. And yet, and yet, the same God who, who will judge you for what you've done wrong comes down in the person of Jesus Christ and dies to pay for all you've done wrong. So you don't face hell, but go to heaven if you trust in him. That's extraordinary that he would do that. That is really extraordinary. And us Christians are so used to it. We just say it all the time and we sing it all the time. But when we think what he faced, some say, of course, well, it's terrible. It's terrible to scare people into becoming Christians. It's terrible that people would become a Christian only because they fear judgment. It's terrible to only appeal to self-interest. Well, possibly. Of course, the Bible would say, come to Jesus Christ because he's wonderful. Become a Christian because God is glorious. There is an exceptional pleasure in knowing him, viewing the world through his eyes and relating to him. Come to him because he's magnificent. And you can be the person you've made to be. You can be restored to the image of God that you are meant to be in rather than your broken, fallen self. It is wonderful to become a Christian. But if the pleasures and the, and the joy of God don't persuade you, become a Christian because you need to. Because you're going to hell without him. So become a Christian. And I think it's pretty extraordinary that God would take us on those terms. Uh, imagine wonderful parents, uh, just the perfect family, the perfect parents. They are loving and they are patient and they are kind and they set good parameters, you know, very clear. They are just... Every, they're your ideal parents. You couldn't get anything better than them. Uh, and they bring up their son. And age 18, he says, I hate you and I'm out of here. And 
They try to contact him. They email, they phone, they write. They try and visit where he's staying. He he ignores them. He'll never open the door to them. He completely shuns them. But they're wonderful. And he says, I don't care. 20 years later, age 38, he knocks on their door and says, I've trashed my life. I'm penniless. I don't like you. But if you don't let me in, I'm sleeping on the streets and I don't want that. And they say, we love you, come in. And you think, well, surely it'd be much better if he went home because his parents are great. Yeah, yeah, if you've got parents, give them a call. Don't wait 20 years. You can call them before then. Give them a, of course it'd be better. But the fact that they still take him in, that's kind. It's his own foolishness that's driven him away. The fact that God would take us only because we fear, not sleeping on the streets, but fear an eternity in hell, that's kind. It's wonderful. Jonah preached judgment. But the warning was a strong one because God wanted people to turn back to him. Uh, The Lord gave a second chance. Jonah preached judgment. Uh, Thirdly then, the Ninevites repented of evil, verses 5 to 9. What's the response? Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So this is extraordinary. I mean, it's clearly a work of God that people would do this. This is a mass movement. Uh, the reform begins with the masses. They're deeply grieved and, and, and act. Wonderful. But let me just highlight three little things that take place here. Okay, the, the word was at work. Their behavior was changed, and there was humble hope. Look, just let me throw you those three. First, then, the word was at work. Verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. So Jonah didn't preach to the king. It just was passed on to him. The warning uh, sort of reached him by word of mouth. So the word of God was at work, even despite Jonah. It didn't get round everywhere. It didn't need to get through the whole of the city. The word of God did its work of convicting people. So obviously, little thing, look, when you share the word of God, when you share the scriptures, when you share the gospel about Jesus Christ, you don't know what it'll achieve. You don't know what will happen. See, the, the students in the whole of London this week ran a, a whole series of events uh, locally, centrally, sharing the gospel with their friends. And some would have seen people become Christians. Others would think, well, what's happened there? You don't know. But the word of God's at work. And no doubt people will become Christians that you don't actually hear of and probably tell other people as well. You can't stop that happening. So here in Nineveh, the word of God was at work. Second little thing, uh, people's behavior changed. What happened when the warning hit the king? Well, verse 7, he proclaimed this. And notice what he adds to what the people have done. He's a bit late to the party, to be honest. He's the last one to get on the sackcloth and get down in the ashes. But let me see what he adds. Verse 7. This is the proclamation he, the king, issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, everyone's involved. Don't let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat and drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Okay, you get the animals involved as well to show we really, really mean this. Let everyone call urgently on God. And then here's the new thing. He emphasizes, verse 8, 
Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Because you see, repentance isn't just a big drama. Repentance is a change of mind that issues in a change of lifestyle. Always in the Bible. True repentance is a change of mind that issues in a change of lifestyle. And both have got to be there for it to be repentance. Really. In one sense, putting on sackcloth and ashes, that's not very hard. Um, You may not look great, but it's not that hard. You do it for a little while and then go back to your old life and so what? It's not that hard. Imagine uh, an employer. An employer's got an errant member of staff. And uh, certainly, this member of staff barely turns up to work. And when they do turn up at work, their work is pretty shoddy. Um, And uh, so they get a written, a verbal warning when they bother to turn up. And then they get a written warning. They get a second written warning. And then he's called in one day because he bothers to turn up and says, you're fired. Why? Well, you had all the warnings and your, your work is pathetic. And you barely ever turn up. You're fired. And the employee says, I am so sorry. And he breaks down in tears in the boss's office and is deeply contrite. I'm so sorry. I see now. I see what I was doing wrong. Look, I was, I was, yeah, I was swinging the lead. Yeah, I thought I was walking the line. Yeah, I thought I could get away with it. I've been a fool. I've dishonored you. I am so sorry. If you just give me one more chance, everything will change. And the boss says, you have one more chance. And so the next week, he turns up every day and his work is brilliant. And the next week, he turns up every day and his work is brilliant. And the third week, he turns up every day and his work is brilliant. And then he bunks off again. And they don't see him for two weeks. And you think, big deal. Big deal. The dramatic gesture, but then a lifestyle that doesn't change. So what? Now look, the Christian life, it begins with a one-off act of repentance. I, there's the Lord, I walk away from him, I walk away from him, but now I see I need him. I trust that Jesus Christ has died for me, paid for my sins, and I walk towards the Lord, I walk his way. That's how the Christian life begins, a one-off act. And the Christian life is one of daily repentance and faith. Always saying, oh, and I did this wrong, I'm so sorry, Lord, thank you that I'm forgiven in Christ. Help me to change. Daily, repentance and faith. So obviously, it's an obvious thing. Don't just confess your sins, but then carry on with some immorality you know is not right. Don't do that. That's not repentance. You're still saying, I quite like to be in heaven, but it's me first. It's me first, and I will operate on my terms. Don't do that. Don't confess your sins, but fail to ever serve at church. It's me. It's all about me, and I don't really want to get involved in the lives of others, and I don't want to get there early. No, it's about me. Don't do that. Don't confess your sins, but then carry on with a life, I don't know, typified by moaning, never thankful for anything. Don't do that. Now, look, the, the difference here is a call to change life. Repentance is a change of mind that issues in a transformed life. It's a battle, not perfect. It's what Christians are seeking to do every day. So look, the world was at work. Uh, their behavior was changed. And there was humble hope. 
uh, verse 9, he says, uh, what do they say? They say, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. Who knows? That's lovely. Uh, Assyrians, you can read about them in the British Museum or online. They're well known for their brutal practices, but also whenever they did anything they thought was a bit naughty, they'd offer a sacrifice and thought, that'll do, God owes us now. We've paid off our debts to him, so we'll be fine. Not a problem. Uh, A bit like a, a corrupt businessman thinks he can pay off the police and they'll turn a blind eye. You can't do that with God. And you can't think that you've made God owe you. So the teenage daughter who's belligerent and rude to her parents and rude and rude and rude and eventually they say, right, that's it. You've lost your smartphone for a week. (gasps) Social death. Social death for the teenage girl. What does she do? Uh, and so the next few days, she washes up everything, uh, everything you know, uh, and, uh, and cleans everything and sets the table and cooks dinner. And the parents say, oh, great, this is really lovely. And she said, yeah, look, I've, I've done everything around the house for two days, so give me my phone back now, because I've shown that, I've, I've shown that um, my behavior's changed. Come on, give me it. And they say, no, no, we don't owe you. you. You don't pay off what you've done wrong. If we give you your phone back before a week, that is kindness. What you're doing now is what you should do. And so don't think that in the Christian life. Well, I've done things wrong, but now I pay God off. You don't do that. You just rely on his mercy. You rely on what Christ has done. The Assyrians, the Ninevites, repented of evil. Last little thing, then God relented, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And did not bring on them the destruction he'd threatened. Um, has God changed his mind? No. No, he's not. Unless God underlines his word with a promise, all prophecies are conditional. Uh, I'm not going to go through it, but write this down if you're scribbling and want to make notes. Jeremiah 18, verses 5 to 10 in particular. Read through it, where God says... Oh, if I warn a nation and it repents of its evil, then I relent and not inflict a disaster upon it. Every, we won't go through it now, we can rip it off the screen, cheers. The, um, but every prophecy of God has conditions tacitly attached to it. Just, just what Jeremiah 18 says. If I say, I will bless you, it always has attached to it, unless you're particularly wicked. And if God says, I will destroy the city, it always has attached to it, unless you repent. That's always implicitly the condition. So the word of judgment in Nineveh is a bit like getting a red bill from the gas company. We will cut you off. Unless you pay the bill. And then you'll be okay. Now Jonah knows that if you look across at chapter 4 verse 2. We'll get to this next week. But chapter 4 verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, isn't this what I said, Lord, while I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah said, look, I knew this would happen. I knew that if I preached 40 more days and you'll be overturned, that all the people would repent and you'd forgive them. I knew that because that's what you're like and that's what Jeremiah has told us you're like. Yeah, yeah. So God relented. Well, yeah. As he had always planned to do. He always planned to use the threat of judgment to cause the Ninevites to repent. Always. So he's not changed his mind. 
Let me conclude with these three practical things. One, two, three. Repent, pray, obey. First then, repent. Can I say with all this in me, really, if, if, if you're not a Christian, please turn around and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Look, there are many, in one sense, there are lots of, lots of reasons to trust in him. I didn't become a Christian because I, I feared judgment and hell. I didn't actually. Some people do. That, but you can become a Christian for lots of different reasons and ways. But here in Jonah 3, it's a reminder that God is saying, Look, if you die tonight and you've not put your trust in Jesus, it is judgment for you. And it if you've been coming to church for a while and, and the glories of Jesus Christ and the wonders of who he is haven't persuaded you, can you let this persuade you at least? Please. Repent. Say sorry for rejecting God of your life. To be clear, this side of the cross, the person who becomes a Christian never says, verse 9, who knows? The Ninevites are thinking, well, who knows what's going to happen next. This side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where God has promised and upon his oath reasserted, if you trust in the death and resurrection of my son Jesus Christ, I will have mercy on you. You never say, who knows, this side of the cross. You say, I trust you and I know that I'm forgiven because Jesus died for me. You can turn to him with confidence. Look, if you've never done so, please, will you please repent? It's very simple. You say three little words in one sense. Lord God, I'm sorry that I've lived my life without acknowledging you. Thank you that Jesus Christ died in my place. Please help me to live for you now and trust in him each day. Repent. Secondly, pray. Look, if you're a Christian here tonight, what are we going to do about this and this word of judgment? Now, for the Christians looking to our city, our city of London, you and I might rightly say, who knows? We might rightly say, looking to London, who knows? If we pray to the Lord, he may have compassion upon our city. Who knows? He may have an extraordinary outbreaking of revival and thousands and hundreds of thousands may turn back to him. Who knows? We don't know that. But we've got to do what we've got to do. We've got to ask him. It's not going to happen unless we ask him. We've got to pray. Lord, please have mercy as you have mercy upon Nineveh, upon our city of London. Pray. And thirdly, if you're a Christian, obey. Revival is God's work and we must pray for it, but evangelism is our work and we must be obedient to it. Obey. We must warn people that without faith in Jesus Christ, they are facing God's anger. But God reveals in Jesus Christ exceptional mercy and compassion. And for whatever reason you turn to him, if you trust in him, he will accept you. He'll love you, even though you don't deserve it. And if you and I have been rubbish at that for years, 
It's okay, we've got a second chance. And there'll be a third chance. But let's resolve we're going to be different from now on. Repent. Let's pray that God does something wonderful. Let's obey his commands to go and take the gospel to the nations. Let's pray together now. Lord, you're perfect in all your ways. You you are a God of perfect justice. Your hostility to evil is steady, measured, unrelenting, unremitting, but consistent. You hate everything that's evil and you will judge it. And you hate everything that's wrong and selfish and you will judge it. But Father, you're perfect in all your ways and you're perfect in compassion and in mercy, and you warn us. Just like you gave this warning to the city of Nineveh, you give a warning to this city, London, and and, and to us, and to many who don't yet trust in you. Father, please would they do so. We would long in our generation to see something extraordinary like this that happened in Nineveh. And we pray that it might happen. Father, forgive me this evening if I've been clumsy in talking of your justice, clumsy in talking of your mercy. But Father, please, would anyone here who's not yours hear these words rightly? And for those of us who are Christians, would we obey you? Would we pray desperately and take your gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ to this city we pray in his name. Amen.